0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A content warning before we begin. Today's episode is not explicit, but only just. You might want to listen to it first before you play it for the kids. In 1984, while preparing for a scheduled radio address from his vacation home in California, President Ronald Reagan announced.
1: My fellow Americans, I'm pleased to tell you today that I've signed legislation that will outlaw Russia forever. We begin (laughs) bombing in five minutes.
0: It didn't go out over the air, but someone had it on tape and slipped it out to the world. Even in the pre internet days, the Soviet Union heard it and they responded. My name's Moxie, and this is your brain on facts. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. We're staying slightly off format again this week. I'm still dealing with some health issues, though the recent surgery went textbook, apparently. And then the other day, because I was feeling okay, I overdid it in the yard and re-injured my back. So, to break up my workload into smaller pieces... Rather than doing one long deep dive into a single topic, we're going to get smaller topics, presenting what may or may not be the first in a sporadic series, mishmash Mashup. And it's pronounced mishmash because it's Yiddish. Like Groucho Marx sternly told a congressman on the campaign trail when he was a guest on Groucho's show You Bet Your Life, you'll never get the vote in the Bronx if you go around saying things like Mishmash. So let's start this mental appetizer platter with Great moments in forgetting your mic was on. Arguably the best example is Reagan's joking threat against our heavily armed Cold War adversaries. He was making a joke during a sound check so the engineers could test the levels on his mic. None of the sources I looked at identified the leaker, but 5'll get you 10, it was one of those guys. The clip took about two months to make its way around the world. A coded message was sent out from the eastern Russian city of Vladivostok, saying, in part, we now embark on military action against the U.S. forces. A special command unit in Usersk went on high alert. U.S. and Japanese intelligence intercepted and cracked the message almost immediately, and Japanese forces raised their readiness status. Russian naval vessels in the Pacific that received the order were understandably confused and tried to confirm with Vladivostok. U.S. intelligence urgently looked for signs of an incipient Soviet attack. Thankfully, they found none. The Soviet alert was canceled just 30 minutes after it was issued. The official report from the NSA later said that one individual in the Eastern Soviet command went rogue alerting his countrymen that they were now officially at war with the U.S., without having been ordered to do so. It was a tense half hour, for those who knew about it. Many a politician should listen to my mother, retired radio personality Joe Christie, who taught her daughters, the mic is always on. Don't say anything within ten feet of a microphone that you wouldn't want going out to the whole world. By the by... Because launching Science with Savannah, age 7, this past week and having my super-secret project to do isn't enough, I'm going to be helping my mom make a podcast about her career and all the famous people and events that crossed with it. Look for Rock History with Joe Christie this summer. After a campaign rally in 2000, George W. Bush took some heat for leaning over to Dick Cheney and saying, There's Adam Clymer, Major League A-Hole from the New York Times naturally I'm cleaning up the language slightly. Cheney, also unaware that their microphones were on, agreed, saying, oh yeah, he is, big time. When pressed later for an answer about it, Bush replied, I regret that a private comment I made to the vice presidential candidate made it to the public airwaves. Which is not an apology, but it was honest. And let's face it, if you think someone's an a-hole, you think they're an a-hole when you consider the faux pas of Jesse Jackson, you have a few to choose from. In 2008, he made a comment about Barack Obama he would describe in his official apology as crude and hurtful, that, Barack, he's talking down to black people, telling n-words how to behave, and that he wanted to cut Obama's nuts off for it. It was apparently such a low-class statement, even Fox News refused to run the clip. Or you might think back to 1984 when Jackson told a reporter, which is basically a microphone that you have to feed, that New York City was Jaime Town, Jaime being an anti-Semitic slur. A storm of protest erupted. Jackson at first denied the remarks. Then he doubled down and accused the Jews of conspiring to defeat him. Jackson Ally, Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, himself an aggressive and vocal anti-Semite, made the situation worse by threatening that reporter on the radio and issuing a public threat to Jews if Jackson ever came to any kind of harm. Finally, Jackson was able to smother the flames by making an emotional apology at a synagogue. President Obama himself raised a few eyebrows with an off-record comment. Prior to taping an interview with CNBC in 2009, the president and the reporter engaged in a bit of chit-chat including Kanye West interrupting Taylor Swift at the recent MTV Video Music Awards. When someone asked why would he do that, Obama frankly responded,
1: He's a jackass.
0: (laughs) Obama followed his comment with the universal cut gesture across his throat to imply that he was saying this off record. Three ABC News employees listening on a shared fiber optic line tweeted out Obama's comment, which took off like mad. ABC News later apologized for the breach. This didn't really result in any kind of scandal, possibly because of the vast swaths of the population that agree that Kanye West is demonstrably a jackass. You barely need to say anything at all if what you're saying contains salty language. The list of politicians dropping F-bombs on the mic includes, but is not limited to, Beta O'Rourke, Lindsey Graham, Joe Biden, John Kerry, Dick Cheney, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, John McCain, Elliot Spitzer, that bastion of good taste, and Lyndon Johnson. While not a hot mic story, there is an amazing recorded phone call between then-President Johnson and the CEO of the Hager Pants Company, asking for pants to be made to the exact specifications of his crotch region. I share it with you now.
1: Or black, to have one blue and one black. I need about six pairs to uh, around in the evening when I come in from work. And I need uh, about a half an inch too tight in the waist. Now, another thing, the crotch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me a inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. It's just like riding a uh wire fence these are almost these are the best that i've had anywhere in the united states right. but uh, uh when i gain a little weight they cut me under there so leave me uh you never do have much margin there let's see if you can't leave me about it. an inch from the where the zipper ends uh round uh, under my back to my bunghole All right, then. so i can let it out there if i need to
0: Leaving the States, while France and Great Britain awaited the decision on which country would host the 2012 Olympics in 2005, France's President Jacques Chirac thought he was having a private chat with Vladimir Putin and German Chancellor Gerard Schroeder, in which he said, The only thing they've ever done for European agriculture is mad cow disease. You cannot trust people who have such bad cuisine. In the end, London had the last laugh. No word on if his comments played a role in the decision with the International Olympic Committee. There was a lot of coverage of Queen Elizabeth calling a Chinese delegation rude, which seems super mild after the rest of this list. But what's interesting is the reason the mic even picked up her sotto voce comment. It was because she was holding a plastic umbrella. It bounced the sound back to the mic. If it had been a regular fabric kind of umbrella... Her comment wouldn't have been recorded at all. Superfan and Patreon supporter Michael Kay sent us some lovely feedback about the first episode of Science with Savannah, age 7, and we quickly went from talking about my cute little co-host to TV tropes involving siblings, principally what is known in scholarly circles as Chuck Cunningham Syndrome. The Cunningham family on Happy Days originally had three children, Marion, Richie, and Chuck. That was apparently too many children for the writers to make good use of. Chuck had few lines and almost no character development. This only got worse as the Fawns quickly became the focus of the show. Then, one day, Chuck took his basketball upstairs and was never seen again. The other characters said he went to college which sounds a lot like saying your elderly dog went to live on a farm. A similar fate befell the youngest child on Family Matters. In the show's fourth season, the Winslow's daughter Judy is seen walking upstairs, but never comes back down. She's never even mentioned again. Cause of death? Steve Urkel, who was only supposed to appear in one episode, but soon became the main character of the show. Bonus fact! Both Happy Days and Family Matters were spin offs of Love American Style and Perfect Strangers, respectively. In the fifth episode of that 70s show, Donna's sister Tina is introduced, then promptly vanishes from the face of the earth. Later in the series, Donna is referred to as being an only child. Tina's disappearance is addressed at the end of a Season 2 episode, when an overly dramatic narrator reads off a bunch of questions like, Will Donna and Eric ever consummate their relationship? The last question is, And whatever happened to Midge's other daughter, Tina? Find out next time on That 70s Show. That was the last time Tina was ever mentioned. This approach is called lampshading. When writers acknowledge something's gone pear-shaped, and then immediately move on. Their way of saying, "Yeah, we just realized it too, but what you gonna do?" Speaking of the '70s, a character on *Mash* was removed for spreading the comedy too thin. An African American neurosurgeon called—I kid you not—Dr. Oliver Spearchucker Jones. Though he appeared in the original novel and the movie, Jones was only in the first six episodes before simply disappearing though his empty cot was left in the tent affectionately known as The Swamp for some time afterwards. Fans theorized his removal could have been because the network slowly realized having a character with a racial slur for a name, even if he likes it and has backstory to support it, might not have been a good idea. Another theory is that the producers found out the U.S. Army had no African-American surgeons in the Korean conflict, at least not in the MASH units. This was corroborated in the mid-90s when producer-writer Larry Gelbart took questions in the alt.tv.mash newsgroup. Ah, newsgroups, when you finally graduated beyond your local BBS. Some of you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. I accept that. Anywhoozle, Gelbart said, Extensive research indicated there were no black surgeons in MASH units in Korea. We were not interested in empty tokenism. We also had to cut down on the number of characters in the series for budgetary reasons. As it turns out, the producers were mistaken, but it took a long time for the facts to emerge. More recent research has shown there were at least two black surgeons in MASH units in Korea. For additional context, the Korean War started two years after the Army was racially integrated by order of President Harry S. Truman. I could give you bonus facts about MASH for the rest of the episode without once having to go to Google, but I'll restrain myself to just one. MASH ran for 11 years, but the active part of the Korean War only ran for three. I say active part because the armistice only paused the conflict. It didn't end it. Character disappearances from TV shows, whether they tell the audience why or not, is an extensive list. So I'll include a link in the show notes. If I forget to, or if your listening app doesn't support HTML, hit me up on the social medias Facebook and instagram.com/ your Facts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. While most apps let you share right from the app itself, if you're listening on Castbox, you can actually share a clip from the episode. So if there's a bit of this that you find particularly interesting, Boom, there you go. Remember, telling friends about a podcast is still the single best way to support the shows you like. And don't forget about our new Facebook group, The Brainiacs Break Room. You can either search for it, or if you feel like typing it out, it's facebook.com groups, plural, slash Brainiac Break Room. I post lots of factoids there that don't go onto the social media or are included in the show. And you are welcome to post any safe-for-work facts that you find. I will probably do a Discord server later, because, you know, a lot of us are trying to wean ourselves off of Facebook. I'm just not as familiar with the Discord UI right now. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Kat
1: and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies?
0: part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. On the flip side from Chuck Cunningham, we have Cousin Oliver, a character added to a failing show to try to win the audience back. Sometimes it works, like Castiel on Supernatural or Amy and Bernadette on Big Bang Theory. Other times, not so much. The eponymous Oliver was added to the Brady Bunch in a desperate last gasp attempt to keep the show going. Kids must be easier to work into the script because they're an absolute crutch for failing shows. Family Matters, who got rid of an actual young person in Season 2, brought on a cute orphan boy called 3J in Season 7 because the other young people on the cast had gotten older. If one kid is a draw, two must be better, reckoned the people behind Full House, who tried to reclaim the Michelle magic by giving Uncle Jesse and Aunt Becky twins. The Cosby Show added kids like they bought them on sale. When youngest daughter Rudy hit puberty, The writers had daughter Denise get married off-screen and come back with stepdaughter Olivia. Olivia. Cousin Oliver. I think they knew what they were doing. Bonus fact, Bill Cosby axed the actress playing Denise, Lisa Bonet, after she filmed a nude sex scene in a movie. She would go on to marry Jason Momoa, so on the balance... Olivia wasn't enough, so eldest Cosby kid Sandra gave birth to twins... Winnie and Nelson. They even tried adding a teenager in the form of cousin Pam, who I have no independent memory of. Growing pains had two: Chrissy, the youngest Seaver child, and then later a homeless child played by Leonardo DiCaprio. The Fresh Prince of Bel Air got a desperate cuteness injection in season five with Will's cousin Nikki. All of these were too little, too late. Not having learned from the Brady Bunch's mistake, Married with Children added an abandoned boy named Seven. Not only did it not help the show, fans hated him so much that he was written out with even less explanation than when he was written in. If we were giving out awards here, top honors would have to go to the TGIF-era Brady Bunch knockoff step-by-step. They had two Chuck Cunninghams. Brendan, the youngest son of the husband, was used less and less in each episode, and forgotten entirely when the show changed networks. And Cody, the goofball cousin who lived in his van, was written out after the actor playing him was arrested for domestic assault. He was later cleared of all charges and made a guest appearance on one final episode. Then the show pulled a cousin Oliver with the addition of Baby Lily, but they had to put their own special twist on it by having her age five years between seasons five and six. This is known as Soras, soap opera aging syndrome, where you just make the character whatever age you need them to be, sometimes by sending them off screen for a while, but always while ignoring reality and just not talking about it. And finally, in our mishmash mashup, a sneak peek into what supporters at patreon.com yourbrainonfacts receive twice a month in the form of the bonus mini-episodes, in addition to the cool swag and early access to the regular episodes. So we present for you now the surprisingly childish ideas that were conceived of and even attempted to fight the Nazis during World War II. Please forgive the slight drop in audio quality. I believe that this was the period of time where I was overdoing it with some of the post-production effects and ruining things rather than making them better. Graffiti is a common form of artistic expression and visual protest, arguably going back to cave paintings 10,000 years ago. It's usually quick to accomplish, making it ideal for speaking out against the government and then beating a hasty retreat. With that in mind... Allied intelligence airdropped insulting stencils and paint behind enemy lines. There was at least one flaw in the plan. Paint is rarely truly permanent. The Germans simply removed the graffiti wherever they found it. So the British government channeled huge resources into developing a substance or method that would be impossible to remove, using an ammonium-based paint that would etch glass. They disguised it as tubes of toothpaste, And smuggled them into occupied Europe, where it was particularly popular for writing insults on the windshields of German officers' cars. Things were going swimmingly until one shipment was accidentally sent to North Africa, where no one knew about the project, and people mistook it for real toothpaste, with a devastating effect on both teeth and morale. It's a staple of comic book ad pages along with sea monkeys and x-ray specs, But who would actually try to use itching powder as a weapon of war? The British Special Operations Executive, as it turns out. The SOE mass-produced a powder that was a powerful irritant to exposed skin and smuggled it into occupied Europe disguised as talcum powder. There, it was distributed to resistance members at laundries and clothing factories, where it could be secretly sprinkled over German uniforms. This wasn't a small-scale operation. In October 1943... The SOE reported that 25,000 U-boat crew uniforms had been contaminated with itching powder. This was apparently successful in getting at least one U-boat to return to port, as the crew had become convinced that they were suffering from some virulent disease. Not content to stop there, the Stockholm office began filling envelopes with itching powder and sending them into the German postal system. The resistance in Norway started putting the powder into condoms intended for German troops. The contaminated condoms were shipped mainly to the Trondheim area, where local hospitals soon filled up with soldiers complaining about painful irritation. There are few more classic or juvenile pranks than a stink bomb. The British also spent large resources developing a stink bomb called the S-capsule, that could be broken onto clothing, like overcoats, to create a horrible stench. The smell would cling on even after multiple cleanings, and since winter clothing was in short supply in the German army, the poor soldier would either have to freeze or walk around reeking like a garbage fire full of dead rats and roquefort cheese. Not to be outdone, the American Office of Strategic Services launched the hilariously named "Who Me" program, This eventually produced a spray bottle that could be used on a German officer to produce a strong fecal smell that would humiliate him in the eyes of his men, depleting morale. Unfortunately, it turned out to be so strong that it tended to cling to everyone in the area, particularly the poor guy trying to surreptitiously spray it on. Proving the military is not dissimilar enough from Mean Girls, Fake party invitations were another weapon of choice for the SOE. In 1944, the German embassy in Stockholm had arranged for the famous actor and comedian George Alexander to give a gala, one-night-only performance of his new comic play, with tickets available only to an exclusive few. The play would be a hilarious farce, but not in the way the embassy had hoped. The SEO produced over 3,000 fake invitations to the play and the swanky reception to be held afterwards. These were sent out to known Nazi sympathizers around the country. On the night of the gala, thousands of Nazi-loving Swedes turned up in black tie, only to be told that their tickets were fake and that they wouldn't be allowed in. The performance was delayed for hours by the angry mob outside. The foolish fascists became a laughing stock around Sweden. I take back what I said earlier about stink bombs being the OG prank. That honor has to go to laxatives. The Atlantic coast of Norway has an economy based largely on fishing. So when Norway's Nazi-controlled government announced that it was requisitioning the entire sardine catch, people were understandably miffed. The resistance had a mole in local Nazi headquarters, who revealed that the sardines were going to be used to feed German troops with the best of the catch to be canned and supplied to U-boat crews. The resistance sent an urgent message to their contacts in British intelligence requesting a strong laxative that would be undetectable in vegetable oil. The British sent back croton oil, an extremely powerful purgative. The Norwegians snuck into the canning factories, where the croton oil was added to the vegetable oil that the sardines were packed in. The sardines were then sent off to U-boat bases across the continent. Now, painful diarrhea is bad at the best of times, but imagine having it while packed into a tiny submarine with several dozen other men, all suffering the same problem. British intelligence was impressed enough by this success to start their own laxative-based campaign, using a substance called carbacol, which supposedly caused diarrhea of epic proportions among 200 people with as little as one gram. As luck would have it though, the war ended before this could be put into action. Speaking of toilets, when the OSS office in Rome realized that the enemy was experiencing a severe toilet paper shortage, they jumped all over it. The department began producing anti-Nazi toilet paper, which would then be dropped into Germany or placed in the bathrooms of trains traveling from neutral Switzerland. Some of the rolls were printed with anti-Nazi text and others just had a picture of Hitler's face and the words, This Side Up. Continuing with the apparent Let's Annoy Hitler into surrendering" strategy, the OSS came up with a plan that was deranged even by their standards. They knew taking Hitler out would strike a devastating blow to the Nazis, but killing him ran the risk of turning him into a martyr. So instead, they decided to drive him crazy. With porn. The agency's crack team of psychologists concluded that Hitler was pathologically prudish about sex. They argued that if Hitler was suddenly exposed to a huge quantity of hardcore pornography, he would be driven to a nervous breakdown. So the OSS R&D division, nicknamed the Choir Boys, assembled a veritable mountain of German pornography. It's probably worth remembering at this point that there was an actual war raging across the globe with guns and bombs and these guys were collecting and assessing Bavarian erotica. Believe it or not, the plan fell apart almost as soon as they put it into action. The OSS decided that the best way to get the porn to Hitler was to have a bomber drop it over his bunker. The thinking being that when the air raid sirens stopped, the Fuhrer would wander outside, see the nudie mags littering the landscape, and instantly be driven to madness of puritanical Lovecraftian proportions. When the plan was explained to the Air Force colonel who was to be in charge of it, he was not on board. In fact, the colonel supposedly left shouting that the entire agency was a bunch of maniacs and the Air Force would not risk the life of any of their pilots on this scheme. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I fully anticipate having a regular run-of-the-mill Your Brain on Facts Up next Tuesday, and I appreciate everyone's patience as I've been trying to cobble things together in my reduced state. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.